Grace Family Church of Rhode Island presents Word of Hope, a sermon series with Pastor Luciano Cozzi. Welcome. The Word of Hope sermon series is a ministry of Grace Family Church of Rhode Island. It was instituted to bring sound teachings from the Word of God to as many people as possible. Our purpose is to offer you a message that is both practical and contemporary, that brings the Word of God to light in a way that makes sense in daily life. As you listen to this message, it is our hope and prayer that the Lord will bless you through it and bring you hope, comfort, and guidance. And now, Pastor Kotze. Have you ever noticed how every time we read or we hear or we experience Advent or Christ, it's always in a crisis? Let's take a a little bit of a big picture here. The first Advent of Jesus, about 2,000 plus years ago, was at the time when Israel was in a deep, profound religious, political, social crisis. That's one reason why there had been many claiming to be Messiahs before, probably some few afterwards. But there was a, a time of expectation, a time when people were longing for Messiah, the promised prophet, to come. At the end, when he will return, he will return at a time of crisis. In fact, in, after the time of the biggest crisis ever, and at the culmination of that crisis, there will be a glorious return of Jesus Christ. But what about in between? Well, think about your conversion. Oftentimes, we have Jesus' advent, Jesus coming to us. Oh yes, we, in our human piety, we, we oftentimes word it in a different way. We word it in a way that sounds like we go to him, that we climb up to him. But in reality, scripture says he's right there at the door knocking. Are we going to open to him or not? He's coming to us. He always is coming to us. And I don't know if you remember, but when you first opened that door, most of us were in a time of crisis, where we were evaluating life and and considering everything. And in the midst of that crisis, that light came, a light that has been shining ever since. Look at this time of the year. As we remember the birth of Jesus Christ, of course, there are many arguments. Was he born in the winter or not? Chances are he wasn't. But guess what? It doesn't really matter. If it did matter, it would be written in Scripture, recorded for us. But it doesn't matter. There are some clues in here that indicate some time of the year, but why did people pick December of all place, of all times, or January? Well, some of you know that in the Eastern tradition, Christmas is on January 6th. In the Western tradition is December 25th. My version of it is I would rather remember and celebrate the birth of Christ, the incarnation of God, God Emmanuel coming to be with us to redeem us any day of the year. But look at this time of the year. Both East and Western tradition of a Christian church have picked the winter. Why? Because oftentimes it is a time of crisis. It is a time of crisis because people go through a lot of different things between the season, the cold, 
uh, the, the lack of sunshine, the depression that many people go through around this time of the year, the, the challenges that we face in many different ways. And then there is that light, that hope, that we remember that indeed Messiah has come and has come to redeem us. And so we have good news. So however we look at it, it seems like there is a consistency of message here. And the consistency of that message is that, yeah, Christ will show himself in a time of crisis. And James here tells us pretty much the same thing. He's addressing in this letter a time of crisis in the church, a time of serious crisis. The church is heavily persecuted, and he speaks about that in the letter. But then it invites us to face that. How? In essence, essentially, the message here is that he invites us to face that time of crisis, the time of trials, and the time of persecution, with the hope of Messiah, with the hope of Jesus Christ. So let's look at that. Let's look at what he says and what he encourages the church, and you will see some things that are particularly interesting. He began in this particular section after talking about, you know, the trials that we face and some people that will indeed take advantage of, you know, the, the goodwill and the good faith of the Christians. He then says, therefore, be patient. Now, that therefore, to begin with, let's look at the very first word. Therefore, obviously, you don't start a sentence, or, you know, see somebody, and the very first thing you see to that per say to that person is, well, therefore, you know, something. No, you're connecting a previous thought with that. And if you think that a previous thought is a thought of trials, well, it kind of makes you think, because we are exposed to those trials, then be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Now, that word, patience, in the Greek here, it means to have long passion or long temper. What does that mean? It means set your minds and set your heart for the long run, not for the short, not for the immediate, but for the long run. Our patience is not a patience that needs to endure only for a few minutes or a few hours. We are called for not a sprint, but a marathon. And it's in that marathon that we need to continue in patience until the coming of the Lord. And so here many look at this passage and say, okay, well, be patient until Jesus Christ comes back. Well, yes, this message is intended to echo through the ages, and it will reach that time. But what about some of us who will not be there at that time? Does this still apply? Yes, it really does, and I'll show you why in just a moment. But let's think for a second that for some of us, that coming of the Lord will not be part of the end times. It will be part of our end of this life. And then we'll be in his presence. So be patient. In other words, another way of saying that is be patient until the end. Be patient until persevere. Put on the long suffering that is an aspect of the fruit of the Holy Spirit within you. Put on that until the very end, until all is said and done. And we see the fruition of what God has been working on in us. Notice the pattern that he uses here in this particular section. James talks about us being patient until the coming of the Lord. Why? That's a good question. Not, not, so, not so much when, but why should we be patient until then? Why does he mention the coming of the Lord? Why, what is, is he pointing out in there? And instead of speculating, like many people unfortunately end up doing in this passage, let's look at what the passage itself tells us. The next thing that he tells us is about the farmer. The farmer who is patient, waiting for the precious produce. It's interesting wording in there. That produce of the soil is precious. It's something that he treasures. It's something that is, well, life-supporting for the farmer. 
And he has to be patient about that until he gets not only the early, but the latter rain for the crop to finish growing and maturing and ripening. And then he just harvests that crop and the reward now is present. Well, that's an interesting thought. We are to be patient until the end. And the example is a farmer being patient until he gets a reward at the time of the harvest. And then he talks about the prophets who were an example of suffering and patience. And we count those blessed who endured, it says. Why? Then look at Job, the other example that he gives us. And how Job went through quite a lot. But at the end of it, what happened? That God restored not only what Job had lost during the time of the trials, but a lot more. A hundredfold. We are to endure. We are to be patient. We are to have a long temper and long suffering until all is said and done because that's the time when the reward will be brought to us. At the return of Jesus Christ, until the coming of the Lord, when the coming of the Lord occurs, when he returns, he will bring the reward with him. But for those of us who will not be alive at that moment, that time of the reward may come at the end of our race. And so we'll be patient till the end nevertheless. The farmer, as we said, doesn't just sit there during the time of waiting. You don't just throw the seed on the ground and then leave and come back several months later expect to have a beautiful crop. You have to work at it. Sometimes you have to prune your plants. Sometimes you have to turn the ground and, and feed it. Sometimes you have to water it. So whatever it is, there is work. If you've ever been a farmer, if you've ever seen a farmer, you will see them at work all the time. So it's not the kind of patience that is passive that he's talking about here. It is the kind of patience that is working toward that goal. Whenever that goal will arrive, we're working at it, for it, in view of that. And then in the middle of that, he says, you too then be patient, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Well, that was stated a long time ago, but you know what? It is near, isn't it? Christ is at the door. What is our life? It's a fleeting moment especially compared to eternity that is before us. But it is very important. And that's why we need to be patient and strengthen our hearts because we have a job to do. And that job that we need to do is extremely important. That job that we need to do makes a difference that will affect eternity for us and for others around us. In that patience, I don't know about you, but let me see. When I'm hurting, when I'm stressed out, I tend to get grumpy. When people come against us, I tend to be annoyed, and I think that perhaps you do too. Sometimes we are patient with each other, yes, but sometimes we stir up in each other a lot of different things, like <coughs> reactions, like oh, not again reactions, right? And yes, we control ourselves. That's room for growth. That's a training ground. That's a learning opportunity, yes. But you know, and I know, how difficult that can be. And how it can be difficult for us to tie our tongue and watch out what we say. Many years ago, somebody told me jokingly, but I thought it was jokingly, in reality it was very serious, plug in your brain before you engage your tongue. I thought, hmm, that's good advice. Translation, think before you speak. What are the repercussions of what we say? All right, I am under stress, I'm in pain, I'm annoyed, I am tested to the limit, but because I'm tested to the limit, the buffer of patience I normally have is not there. So you say something a little off, and I might just bite back, and then say, oops, I'm sorry, didn't mean that. 
Now you can say, oops, sorry, didn't mean that as much as you want. But just like an arrow being shot, you can't go and run after it and stop it in midair and say, oops, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to shoot at you. That arrow will go and will do damage and that damage is going to be done. And then you have to deal with the damage that is done. So here's the next statement. Do not groan, don't complain, don't bicker, don't do those kind of things with each other, against one another. Not, it's not just complaining or groaning in the sense, oh, this is really hurting. No, it's when that complaining, that groaning, this is hurting, this is difficult, this is tough, turns to, the, to one another and says, stop it, I got enough of you. Or, oh, you never do anything right. Or, you're too late, or you're too early, you're too this, or you're too that. You know, sometimes if we stop and think about it for a moment, we really don't want to say those things, but we're under stress. And when we are under stress, like I said before, that buffer is missing. And sometimes we catch the words that we say after we say them, not before, but after, again, it's too late. So James reminds us, don't do that. Don't groan, says the Greek, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Because behold, the judge is standing right at the door. What does that mean? Well, I think it just reflects what Jesus taught. Do unto others as you would want be done unto you. The golden rule. And elsewhere, Jesus also said, well, with the judgment with which you judge, you shall be judged to you. So we should be careful. And if we can't do that out of love, as we should, if we cannot do that out of an outpouring of ourselves toward the other, as we should, as brothers and sisters, we can at least do that because we don't want to be judged by the Lord himself. Because last time I checked, he would have a couple of things on me, wouldn't he? And I think he would have a couple on you too. He would have a few things to point out to you. He would probably have more reasons to gripe and complain about you and your behavior or me and my behavior than you have for anyone else. And that thought makes me wonder, maybe I should just be quiet, understand, or, as James says earlier, you have two ears, one mouth. So listen, be quick to listen, and slow to speak, and slow to anger, and so slow to criticism. You know, I've seen people working day and night for their brothers and sisters, pouring themselves out, giving up jobs sometimes, giving up, taking a personal sacrifice to the nth degree. And then somebody comes up and says, hmm, I don't like what you did. It's not perfect the way I would do it. And I'll tell you, when that happens, my Italian blood boils over. And you better not be in front of me when that happens. Because you may not recognize me for the moment. Then I calm down and I pray about it. And maybe I need to address that. So I'm addressing it now. Especially this time of the year when things should have been, but are not. When things could be, but maybe are not. Oftentimes we say, oh, this is the time to be happy. You know, the time to be jolly. Guess what? There is so much sadness. But instead of criticizing someone else's pain, instead of criticizing someone else's grief, instead of criticizing someone else's shortcomings, because instead of just being frolic at this time, they had to deal with tragedy in their life, how about we give them a supporting hand and a little bit of encouragement? Yes, what a novel idea. That's love. And James reminds us of that. In fact, he says, look, at, at the example of, a, of suffering and patience that the prophets endured or displayed. They spoke in the name of the Lord. Was it easy for them? No, it wasn't. You know, it's not just in our days that the word of the Lord is not popular. It's always been countercultural. It's always been unpopular with many people. But they spoke it faithfully, despite it all. And we regard them, we count those blessed who endured. We don't think that they are blessed the ones that gave up in the middle of it. Oh, well, you know, this is getting 
a little tough. It's getting a little difficult. I give up. This is getting a little scary. I'm going to stop going in the right direction. I'm going to go the other way so that I don't stand out in the crowd and people don't point me and, you know, point me out and, and, and target me as being a Christian. I had a very sad conversation with one individual one day who was working in academia. And it's amazing how sometimes in the world of academia, if you're a Christian, you are out. And so he was worried about his job and kept hiding his Christianity. Not just hiding it by saying, not saying, hey, I'm a Christian, but hiding it in the behavior as well. And that is sad. It is sad because we allow the circumstances and the environment to change who we are and how we are. Those prophets set an example for us. During their trials, during their difficult moments, they stayed faithful to the name of the Lord because they spoke in the name of the Lord and endure that. Look at the other example that is given to us, the example of Job. You know, this is not just talking, therefore, about persecution. It's not just talking about trials that come from outside. Job experienced a great deal of trials because of his health. God allowed him to be sick and in pain for not just a little bit, but for a long time, and not just any pain. In fact, look at the loving advice of his wife. Just curse God and kick the bucket. I'm thinking, yes, lovey-dovey wife. <laughs> Thank you so much for your advice. You fail the test. But what is the one thing about Job? Isn't that the steadfastness of Job? that we remember? Isn't that the endurance of Job that we remember? Was Job perfect? No, of course he wasn't. That's why God corrected him. But he stood up. Job stood up and endured that. And Job said, look, the Lord has given me many blessings. Why should I curse him when he gives me challenges? But it's tough. It's not easy. And yet, what is pointed out here by James, it's not so much the suffering of Job, but the blessing at the end of it. Oh no, it's not setting up a rule that, hey, listen, I'm going to endure for six months and then God is going to pour a bunch of blessings on me. Health and wealth gospel. No thanks. It's not that. What he's pointing out is that at the end of our life, at the end of our trials, at the end of all of it, God has such a great reward for us. God has such a great inheritance for us. It's absolutely breathtaking and amazing. And Job, the example of Job, was a type of that. This is not that God says, well, look, you endure your illness, and then I'm, afterwards I'm going to heal you, and I'm going to give you wealth and prosperity and health and everything else. You know, some of us will die without that. So what? Does it change the promise of God? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. We will receive the blessing, but at the right time, in the right way. In fact, the blessing that God has in store for all of us is way too big and way too great to be received in this life. You and I cannot possibly even begin to understand it, let alone deal with it in this life. And you know what it is. Revelation 3 says that we are going to be sitting with him on his throne. Think about that, sitting with him on his throne. In the Bible studies, we went through the book of Revelation. And one thing we have seen is the book of Revelation is a very encouraging book, contrary to what some people make of it, because they concentrate only on the mess that we make. But you notice the pattern of the book. It, it talks about the mess we're making, but then it presents God still on his throne. And then it talks a little, some, a little more about the mess that we're going to make, and, but then interrupts that and shows God still on his throne. And he shows us what God is doing and why God allows those things to happen so that we don't lose heart. Because at the end, it all works out. It's a book of hope in trials. 
And as we were going through that book, we've seen in that that God has a plan, a great plan, an awesome plan, and we're all part of it. And God is going to place us on his throne. Think about that imagery, you know. Again, as we were going through the book, and we, we noticed how many times the picture is taken from John's perspective, looking up at the, at the throne of God. And that perspective is, you, you almost see, as you picture the, the imagery that he describes in the, in the book, in those moments where we are brought before the throne of God, you can see that picture from outside. You can see the throne of God and the angels around worshiping him and so on. But then we forget one thing if we're not careful, that when all is said and done, we don't look at that picture from outside because we're going to be with him on his throne, smack in the middle of it all. And I'm thinking, wow. Wow, Lord, I couldn't possibly even begin to dream something like that. But that's what you say. And what are we going to do as we were sitting with him on his throne? God says, hey, we're going to make all things new. We're going to, if Romans, Paul, God inspired Paul to write in Romans 8, the creation right now is subjected to futility, to decay. And God says, we're going to make it new. We're going to make it glorious. That's why in Romans 8, again, it's written that creation is eagerly waiting for the manifestation of the children of God because God is going to set creation free. And that's what Romans 8 says. In the glory of, what would you say comes after? You know, the other day I read it with a counselee over in the counseling center, and I, and I thought, as I read it, I thought, I, in my mind went, well, in the glory of God, of course. But that's what, not what he says. Creation will be set free in the glory of the children of God. And that kind of blew my mind again, and all of a sudden it brought me right back to what God has in store for us. He's going to make all things new, but we're going to be with him doing that with him. We have a glorious future ahead. And so the story of Job, the patience of Job, the endurance of Job, and that God giving him a reward at the end, physically at that time, yes, as an example, as a type of the fact that God has so much more in store for us when the time comes. But we have a job to do in the meantime. And that job is not necessarily to be prosperous. The job is not necessarily to be healthy all the time and to be happy all the time. The job is to endure, to do what James calls us to be, be patient, to have long passion, long temper, long suffering, going for the long run despite all the things that happen to us because that's when the message of God through us is most vivid and it's the loudest. Notice the end of that passage. The Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Well, Lord, I'm not so sure about that, we might be tempted to say. I'm hurting so much. I'm in so much distress. I'm hurting physically. I'm in agony emotionally. How can that be compassion and mercy? Here's one way to look at it. Would you ask God for what you deserve? That means you're smart. And that means that everything that you are experiencing right now in this life, every trial, every little bit of suffering, is not nearly as much as we would have brought upon ourselves was it not for the grace and the mercy of God. So keep being smart and don't ask God for what you deserve, but praise him and thank him for the mercy and the grace that he has extended to every one of us. And whatever degree of suffering that we share with this fallen world, let's put it to use for the praise and the glory of God as in those examples. Because maybe we too are called to be some of the giants of the faith, those that go through great trials but are counted blessed by endurance. What are the stories that sometimes we, we see on TV or we hear told 
but some of those inspiring stories that are shared with us, aren't they stories of people that have gone through trials, sometimes desperate trials, and yet they endured to the end, and they did something that turned the trials into an opportunity? I'm thinking of a few right now in my mind. People who, by, by the standards of this world, would have probably be the most miserable of all, the losers who endured, however, their situation, their pain, their suffering, their disabilities in many cases, and shone like bright lights, displaying and showing the glory of God in a way that we don't normally see, because it is shown through, through their pain, through their trials, and not around them. So, as we look at this passage today, look at the pattern of it. There is a crisis, but in that crisis, we meet the Lord. There was a crisis in Israel, and the Lord came to redeem us all. There will be a crisis in the world, and the, and the Lord will return once again to redeem us all, maybe in a different way this time. And sometimes there are crises in, in our lives, and in those crises, well, maybe that's an opportunity for us to get reacquainted with the Lord, to have one of those moments that we call epiphanies, moments in which we connect with Him, and we see His purpose working out in our life, moments in which we look at the challenge and we see an opportunity in it, an opportunity to bring glory to His name, an opportunity to serve one another, an opportunity to strengthen and encourage one another instead of tearing each other down. It's a great, great blessing to be part of the body of Christ. This broken body, from a physical perspective, falling apart, from an emotional perspective, sometimes grumpy. Somebody painted this picture of a wedding. The bridegroom beautifully dressed with a tuxedo, spotless, awesome. And here comes the bride for the wedding. Her dress is shredded, stained, messed up. Her hair is frazzled. The makeup is a mess, running everywhere. What do you think is going to happen now? I'll tell you what's going to happen. The bridegroom grows to the bride, cleans her up, and then says, thank you, I've been waiting for you. And that's all of us. It's not so much how we make ourselves, but what he makes of us. And the important thing is that we make it there. And we do so because he came to this world, gave himself for us, so that he can present us to himself pure, immaculate, without spot, without wrinkle, in the full glory, the glory that he has shared with us, his own glory, not our own. So let's rejoice in that. Because when everything is said and done, there's going to be an awesome celebration. There's going to be an awesome banquet, spiritual banquet. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Because his bride is finally here.